Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Sarah Ferber. Sarah is the Education Manager at the Food Security Network, NL. FSN's mission is to actively promote comprehensive, community-based solutions to ensure access to adequate and healthy food for all people in the province. Sarah works closely with community groups across Newfoundland and Labrador to gather, share, and preserve food skills and knowledge. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming in. I'm delighted that you're here. Uh, what is the Food Security Network? Uh, Food Security Network is a provincial nonprofit organization, and we were started in 1998 in response to concerns about hunger and poverty in the province. And since then, we've been uh, working on numerous different projects to address food insecurity here. So we do have some troubling statistics in Newfoundland and Labrador. You've probably seen more of it on the the in the media lately. And so we're addressing those with mainly community-based solutions. So we partner with groups at the local level to address the issues that they're facing in their communities in ways that are appropriate to their communities that come from the ground up. Can we talk a little bit about some of those those statistics, just about what the, the situation is in terms of food security in the province? Sure. We do have, um, uh, well, a common one that you see in the media is that there's a two to three day supply of fresh vegetables available from local wholesalers in the instance that the food supply chain is cut off. So that would be through our major grocery store outlets. And that stat comes from 2007. So it is a little bit older, um, but the people that pulled it together think that it might have actually worsened since then. Oh, okay. Um, so we are vulnerable in that most of our food is coming in by boat or by plane or by truck um, and those those transportation systems can be interrupted through labor disputes through road issues weather um, all kinds of things and right? we've seen that fairly recently with uh, yeah, you know, ferry ferry delays and 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 you know we go to the grocery store and shelves are bare and and people are somehow surprised that you know, we live in an island and we forget that our food comes from someplace yeah else. and we yeah. see it in St. John's where we are now but then if you're in a rural isolated community it's even more extreme because your food is then going through other major centers before it gets to you yeah. and a lot of times it's not of the highest quality or freshness yeah. um, and then tied to that is also issues around health so we have high rates of chronic disease and obesity, um, and then issues of poverty and access to food. So we do still have the highest food bank usage in Canada, as far as I'm aware. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of people in our province that are not able to regularly access healthy, affordable, fr fresh, safe food on a regular basis. And that's a major concern that we look at every day. So how new is this dependence on store-bought food? Um, historically, you know, we produced a lot of food here. When, when did that shift happen that we became primarily focused on food from away? I think the shift happened as transportation developed over time. So with the introduction of railway and the, the roadways and more products were able to be brought in and more um, companies started up businesses and open stores. And the, even the idea of a grocery store is a fairly new thing mm -hmm. here in terms of these large scale stores that we're familiar with now. But um, for the most part, uh, traditionally, people had their kitchen gardens that supplied most of their vegetables for the year. They did a lot of bartering. So someone, uh, say a farmer who produced a lot of root crops, 
would be bartering for labor with a fisher um, team when they were not out on the water and they'd come and work the fields and they'd be trading for their different products and most people kept uh, some chickens and and a pig and a, a cow and a lot of people if they could would have a horse and we were just much more tied to our food system mm-hmm. we were always importing and depending on um, some of the staple foods from away so people were bringing in their flour and sugar and molasses and those things that we couldn't produce here but generally you got a delivery of those maybe once or twice a year depending on the boats and the uh, transportation and then you made that last for as long as possible yeah exactly and that's reflected in a lot of our recipes right how to how to stretch the flavors <laughs> <laughs> exactly um, maybe we'll come back to recipes later but uh, I, I, I'm interested in this idea that uh, you know we once had this knowledge about how to be more uh, self-sufficient in terms of food and I know that you've been doing some work with the food security network um, trying to tap into some of that traditional knowledge of seniors and there's been a couple different projects that you've had to, mm-hmm. to kind of root out some of that uh, information if you will um, and maybe we could talk about the all around the table the film series Series. Uh, can you describe that project? Sure. And that was in, if I recall correctly, 2010-11. And that was funded through New Horizons for Seniors, which is a, a federal funding program. And it was a really, really exciting project. It was one of the most fun things I've ever had the, the privilege of doing. And we, we're really responsive to the interests of our membership. We do, we gather a lot of feedback from the people that are, are part of our, our network. Um, and they were really keen on seeing that traditional knowledge preserved. So how do we grab onto the, the wonderful information that seniors have around how food was planted, picked, prepared, and preserved, and share that with the younger audiences and make it accessible and make it beautiful and fun. And so we um, partnered with a film company called Heavy Weather, and we interviewed 12 seniors on the Avalon Peninsula. Originally, we had hoped to interview seniors all across the province, and that was what we put in for our, our, um, our proposal. But then the funding didn't come through as much as we had hoped. So sometimes people ask, well, why is it only the Avalon? And we really had wished to be able to, to get farther afield. Mm-hmm. Um, but then funding kept us in that locale. And so we interviewed 12 really wonderful seniors. And we did that in partnership with community groups. So we um, developed relationships with four community groups in four areas. So that was Riverhead, St. Mary's Bay, uh, Carbonier, St. John's, and oh, and I'm just blanking on the last one. <laughs> it's going to come to me. And did, did they uh, identify the seniors? They did, and they were our connection to their community. Right, yeah. So rather than us going in cold and trying to find people in the community, we worked through these groups. And the exchange that was created was um, that we provided workshops in those communities with the groups that we partnered with. Um, so we hosted uh, 10 workshops over the course of a year with the different groups, and then we did the 12 interviews. And the 12 interviews were turned into what's now all around the table which is a series of um, 12 short films they each run sort of a maximum of seven minutes altogether it's an hour long and um, we talked to them about their personal experiences what food was like in their families how they ate and who prepared the food where it came from Um, we talked to them about the traditional skills in their communities how knowledge was passed on and and how they learned the different things that they did growing up, um, and then turned those into the films. And then we were really lucky to also partner with Dan Ficken, a local musician, and he put some really beautiful original music behind it. Mm. So those are available free on our website, uh, which is foodsecuritynews.com. You can watch all 12 of them from YouTube. 
there. And then we also have uh, DVD copies. So we frequently lend those out across the province. And um, oftentimes at seniors groups, we'll do film screenings with their members um, and use the films as a jumping off point to have conversations about those traditional skills yeah. and, and have like storytelling circles and traditional meals and, and different events related to the films. So it's a lot of fun. And you had some screenings when the project came out. You had some screenings in the communities where those uh, mm-hmm. pieces were filmed. What was the response like from the seniors? We had our, our big uh, grand debut screening in Carvenir at the Princess Nagira Theatre, and it was phenomenal. It was so fun. We had, uh, I can't remember now, over 50 people come and, and local media, and, and the mayor came and gave a talk, and it was just wonderful. People were really, really excited. And um, the seniors that were interviewed in the films, I think, had a bit of like stars in their yeah, eyes. They yeah. did feel, uh, one of them remarked that they were like Brad and, An- and Angelina. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, they did feel, I think, honored, and, and they should, because they have so much uh, knowledge to share, and we were really proud to show them off. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we, we had a, a conversation here on the show a, a little while ago, and we were talking about um, the importance of celebrating tradition, and, and sometimes people don't perceive the information they have as being valuable. Yeah. Um, and so when we hear things like this, you know, oh, yeah, they felt like a movie star, you know, yeah. that's, that's great. And yeah. I heard that a lot, just like, you know, oh, girl, that's what we always did like why is that <laughs> special or why are you even asking me about that yeah. but it's it's not how it's done today and people don't realize what was done and and so it is really neat to celebrate it and to celebrate the individuals because now we have this preserved in time interview with them which I think is really neat because I've been approached afterwards by uh, grandkids or children of these people and as they've aged and their health has declined you know this is it captured a, a period in time when when they were feeling really good and they were talking and they were really animated and for their families it's a special thing to have as well yeah uh, do you have a, a, a story or a, or a senior from that program that really stands out in your your memory does is there something that uh Kind of. I think that um, maybe the video that I go back to the most is um, is one with a retired principal from Carbonier, and he was just so uh, eloquent and so passionate about it. And mm. he talked a lot about how um, gardening provides this kind of catharsis, this uh, this well being, and the way that we see a lot in the media now, people talking about meditation or yoga. He was talking about gardening and just the simple act of getting your hands in the soil and how good it is for your mind and your body and your soul. And he was really passionate in his interview that he just wanted people to plant anything. Like, it doesn't (laughs) matter what it is. Put a bean in a pot and and just watch it grow because he was sure that it would snowball for people because he just experienced such benefits from it. So the health benefits go beyond just the the nutrition value. Yeah, certainly. The mental health benefits and social connection and... A lot of the groups that we partner with are part of community gardens, so it's right. getting seniors out of isolation um, to share those skills with other people, hopefully younger people, and, and garden as a collective. Yeah, we did a, we did an oral history project with seniors, uh, which was also funded by New Horizons, and that was a big part of the grant application was, you know, demonstrating how this does reduce isolation in, mm-hmm. in seniors, which is a, which is a real problem I think in, in today's. You know, we the world has changed, and it, it used to be that um, you know grandparents lived with their families, and and that's not. Quite quite the case as it once was in, in, in years past. Um, you have another seniors project that you're working on now, the Seniors Food uh, Celebrations, and that's a project that's been running for two years? Yeah, yeah. so that was, um, we finished up all around the table, and then we had a break of, of a year on seniors projects, and then we were successful with another New Horizons for Seniors grant. And this time we um, 
decided to host these celebrations. So we knew that the uh, the older population had all of this information and that we were really interested. Um, but sometimes it's difficult getting out there and connecting with them as community groups. And um, so it was basically for us like an outreach project. And what we wanted to do was keep it really fun. So these were basically parties. Um, we wanted to get big groups of seniors together to eat a really delicious meal or have a big tea or whatever they wanted to do, um, talk about issues around food in their communities, and then learn some kind of new skill. And that was the only sort of requirements that we put on it. It was very open-ended. So every senior's food celebration was totally different. And uh, it ended up uh, going way beyond our expectations. We were hoping to do 24, and we did 32. So there were a lot of events in yeah, a year. A yeah. <laughs> we ended up hiring another part-time staff person to support all of the events. And uh, they were just so much fun. We had some really wonderful huge events and then some really intimate small ones. And each had its own flavor and different food and different food skills. We did container gardening and composting and uh, learning about edible wild plants and um, preserving and bottling, all kinds of uh, great hands-on things. And for a lot of those food skills things, the, the people that were attending had just as much knowledge to share as the facilitator that was there to run the workshop. Mm -hmm. uh, and then very informal and interesting conversations about what, what it was like to live in the different communities and experience the food situation that they were in. Yeah. And, uh, and then we ate. And <laughs> sometimes there was also it's, bingo and square dancing. <laughs> it's <laughs> astonishing how many of these interviews come back to food. I don't know if that's me or yeah. if that's just a... <laughs> it's the common thing, right? Yeah, it's And great. we say that our audience is everyone who eats, and yeah. you can always connect over <laughs> I, that. I definitely fit in that audience. Yeah. Um, I, I love this idea of doing the hands-on workshops, too, because I think that transmission of skills is, is as equally important to the celebration aspect. Uh, and I know that you do all kinds of different workshops. Can you talk about some of those? Like, what, what's been very, what's a very successful workshop that you think you've done? I think that well, we have um, a kit available. We have uh, eight official workshops that we've developed all the resources for um, related to local food skills. And then there's probably another three or four other ones that are not in the workshop kit, but we're able to do them. Um, but the ones that seem to be most popular are container gardening and uh, composting. Okay, we get asked to come in quite a lot for those two. Also. So preparing local vegetables. I'm doing one of those later this week at the public library. And um, so just how to maximize on the food that is available locally and, and use the what's coming out of your garden or what's um, from your local farm stand that you can get the most out of it. So give me an example. How, what, when you do this workshop, what, what's uh, something that you'll be teaching in that workshop? That... Uh, the preparing local vegetable ones will be talking about some of the different skills. Uh, a lot of times people are familiar with using vegetables by boiling them a lot or frying them. Mm -hmm. or, or So we encourage some of the ways that are a little bit lower on sodium and, and fat use. So we would do um, teaching people how to blanch vegetables and steam them, roast them, uh, grill them, all of those different methods that are out there that are maybe not as traditional traditional, but they use those same vegetables that people are familiar with. Yeah, so it's using like local traditional vegetables in, a, in perhaps a newer way. Yeah and, yeah, and that workshop's been adapted in really interesting ways by other groups too, like the Multicultural Women's Organization of Newfoundland and Labrador has adapted it and used it to um, for people that are not familiar with the vegetables locally because they're new immigrants from other countries that had different produce, mm -hmm. um, how to use those vegetables in their recipes from home. So adapting the different root crops 
crops and squash and things that are available here into the recipes that they've brought from away. So that yeah. was really interesting too. Have you been have you been collecting or had uh, had experiences with traditional Newfoundland recipes? Are you learning information about that too? I, I personally like to collect them and, <laughs> yeah. and I like to eat them when people make them. <laughs> do, you, do you have a Do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite traditional recipe? Um. I, I love tea biscuits. Yeah. I think that's, I could eat those all day long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever anyone makes like a nice, uh, white raisin tea biscuit, yeah. that's my favorite. I and think. it's astonishing how much variety there is in, in local recipes too. You know, like what, what one community will do will be very different from what another. Yeah. And it's, will a, do. it's amazing when they're even really close to each other. Like you just go over a hill and it's totally different and then they don't want to share. And <laughs> yeah. So. I'm, I'm mystified and, uh, fascinated by the the tradition of uh pork buns you know so a tea bun with like pork fat in it have you oh, have okay. you experienced no, I haven't that? Had that yeah i was i was somewhere i think on the buren peninsula and someone was having tea buns and they had these these tea buns that had these kind of white chunks in it i thought oh it's like white chocolate or <laughs> and then you bite into it and you're like that's definitely not white chocolate that's a you know, pork fat yeah and <laughs> so, i wonder if that was because of uh maybe access to butter because usually yeah. tea buns have a lot of butter in them yeah, but yeah. pork fat might have been more easily available than butter i think it goes back to something you were saying earlier that people would get um get uh, their their food supplies in in kind of one big batch and it would be stuff that would preserve well over the winter and then that was what they had and so they yeah. they would have to adapt these traditional recipes for and Everything came in barrels and sacks and like these quantities that even Costco can't yeah. envision, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was, it was really different and you had to store it properly because if your barrels or sacks were in the wrong place and they got damp or they got insects, then that was your food supply. So yeah. food storage was really a, an important part of it as well. And you've done some work on root cellars. Yeah. 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 Talking about that, that, that food um, storage side of things. Um, and you have a, a website that kind of draws on this idea of the root cellar as a kind of an almost iconic symbol of food mm-hmm. security in, in Newfoundland. Yeah. yeah, we have a blog called rootsellersrock.ca and um, that's where we try and share some of the, the skills and the recipes and, and links to different contacts around local food across the province. Mm. Um, we're actually though going through rebranding, so as of the fall we're going to be Food First NL and all of our website and our blogs and everything are getting a makeover and changing in that. So um, it'll all be under the umbrella of Food First NL soon, yeah. but none of the content will be lost. So. Yeah, cool. Yeah. You know, talking about bringing food in, I, I remember doing uh, a workshop on the Labrador Straits, and we were talking about people's memories of growing up in, in, in rural Labrador, and I was asking people to remember a smell. Uh, and when I, I sometimes do this in oral history workshops, I'll say, what's a, what's a smell that you remember from your childhood? And one thing that always comes up in Newfoundland is the smell of bread, like the, the yeah. smell of freshly baked bread. And on the Labrador Straits, one thing that was... Uh, a strange thing to me, but was um, uh, something that uh, repeated itself in, in different uh, in different places. Was that people remember the smell of um, apples? That they would get a barrel of apples, mm-hmm. and the, these barrels of apples would come off the, the the ship, and they would take the the cover off the barrel, and they would get this this smell of of fresh apples that would come up from Nova Scotia or New Brunswick or somewhere. And because there were no apple trees at mm-hmm. all on on the Labrador coast, you know. Uh, and so people have very uh, strong memories about food, 
and uh, and things that matter to them, you know, at kind of yeah. the community level. One of the the people that we interviewed, he could remember the sound um, of his mom chipping at the ice of the partridge berries because oh, yeah. they'd put all the partridge berries in a barrel and they'd cover it in water and it would freeze over the winter. Now, I don't even know if it would freeze in, in our winters now, right? If you yeah. think about it just being out in your shed, a whole barrel freezing. Um, but the partridge berries would freeze and then she'd go out with an ice pick and a little uh, scoop and chip away chip at the away. ice and get a chunk of berries off and then take that in and put it in the pot and boil it down into jam or sauce or whatever. Yeah, right? we, I remember doing a, a, a workshop in Carbonier actually and a woman was talking, we were talking about Christmas memories and a woman was saying that one of her favorite smells from her childhood was a Christmas smell. And for her, it was the smell of pig's blood. Because <laughs> they, that was that when was they the, would kill the pig. That was when they would kill the pig. And then her father would make blood pudding out of the out of the pig's blood. And this was the only time of year when they would have that. And for her, that was such a precious memory. You know, not something that we would normally think of as a lovely Christmas memory. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but then her, they, they knew then that there was this meat available for the next month or yeah. however long that they stretched it out. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to talk as well about the work that you're doing with kids and especially, you know, getting kids uh, involved with uh, with food and gardening and, and, and in the schools. Can, can you talk a little bit about that program? Sure, yeah. We've been really lucky to link into a, a national initiative called Nourishing School Communities. Um, so it's a collective of different organizations nationally that's... Um, pooled together their their various projects and expertise to draw upon some funding to work on improving uh, healthy school environments. And so part of that is a piece around Farm to School, and the lead organization on that is Farm to Cafeteria Canada, and we work pretty closely with them. Uh, Christy, our executive director, is on their uh, steering committee, and, and we're linked in. And so they got this Farm to School program funding, and they've initiated projects here in our province, in New Brunswick, and in Haida Gwaii, which is an island off the coast of BC and uh, what we're doing is trying to launch farm to school uh, projects in areas where they they weren't happening as much before so for us it was very very new coming to Newfoundland and Labrador and so farm to school are initiatives that are connecting schools to communities and connecting schools to their local food system and farmers and um, that's done in a lot of different ways and the the two projects that we're taking on one is the first farm to school salad bar that we have here in the province so that's being piloted at St. Bonaventure's College here in St. John's and they had a approached us before this funding became available with interest in um, in improving the healthy options in their cafeteria. So when the opportunity came up, it was, it was a really nice fit. And so what they've now implemented is a, an all-you-can-eat self-serve salad bar for K to six, or sorry, K to 12 students. Uh, it's offered two days a week. And as much of the produce as possible is coming from Lester's Farm Market. That's the, the farm that they've partnered with. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to get more of the fresh food and the local food into the students in that school. And so the, the salad bar is just beautiful. It's like a, a rainbow of options. And the teachers are eating it and administration and everything as well because it's just a really nice lunch. And... Um, so that's the, the one component of our Farm to School initiative. And then the other is um, we're partnered with School Lunch Association, which is a, a nonprofit hot lunch provider that's in um, 25 schools around the St. John's and surrounding region. And they started out similar to us because of concerns around hunger and poverty. And so they began as a, and they still are, a, a, a very affordable universal lunch program. So students are able to have the hot lunch regardless of their ability to pay. It's all done under 
anonymously with uh, with envelopes of money. And so if you're able to pay the full amount, then fantastic. And if you're not, then you still are able to have your lunch or provide for your, your child that lunch. And so we're working with them on a an initiative called a learning lab. So we've brought together all these different stakeholders from um, Eastern Health and from the the school board and from different organizations related to food, um, food safety, all of those different players that think about school food often, but the, the idea of farm food in schools is maybe on the side of their desk. It's something that they're passionate about, but it's not a, a major mandate of what they're doing. So we've been able to bring them together, and we meet every six months, and we've developed an action plan to um, try and increase access to healthy farm fresh food in the school lunch association offerings. So this could potentially have, have impact in those 25 schools having um, more local, sustainable, fresh, healthy options. So mm-hmm. That's really exciting for us. Do you think the kids today know where their food comes from? Uh, some of them do. Like there, are, there's are some wonderful programs that are happening in school, and there is some of it built into our curriculum. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see more of it, though, and I'd love to see it across the board. That you could talk to any student, and that in their life they've pulled up a carrot or dug up a potato. But unfortunately, that's not the case yet. So yeah. that's what we're working towards. And um, another thing that we do is support school gardens. So quite a lot of schools now are are putting in playground gardens. Right. And. Um, so we would help by connecting them with resources and with other schools that are doing it so they can learn from each other and with best practices and tips that we've gathered from connecting with all these different gardens. And, you know, how do you make it through when the growing season and the summer overlap? How do you make your school garden work and all of those kinds of things? Yeah, because I guess that's a challenge with school gardens is that the growing season is generally when the school isn't yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And then talking to our partner groups in, say, BC, where they start their first planting in February, March, and, you <laughs> know, they, they've luxury. already had whole harvests come out of the ground before we've even planted anything, right? Yeah. So it's a little bit different. So everything that we do around food, we're adapting it to Newfoundland and Labrador. It's really, we take the best practices and the lessons and the programs that we've heard about from other places, but then we usually have to finagle them to make them work here. Yeah. So what's what's next? You're doing some work on the Northern Peninsula? Yeah, and I'm really excited about that. And this is a nice sort of outreach opportunity for me, too, because we have funding now um, to host 12 events up on the Northern Peninsula. And they'll be similar to what we were talking about before, those food skills workshops. Um, different groups can approach us if they'd like to host a workshop and we'll have facilitators and support to assist them to do that and then we also want to do a bigger training event so training somebody or a group of people up there um, to be able to use the kits and resources that we have so that they can continue to host these up on the northern peninsula so that pay it forward train the trainer kind Mm -hmm. of um, program so that's going to be happening in the coming years so if there's any groups listening uh, contacts from the northern peninsula yeah they can get in touch with me to find out more about that program so what's the easiest way for people to get in touch with you uh, probably through my email sarah ferber uh, s-a-r-a-h-f-e-r-b-e-r at foodsecuritynews.com okay and you're going to be going through a new uh, a rebranding as you were saying yeah so, so I, I will have a new email address and that but our phone number is also 237-4026 and yeah. that will stay the same uh, the facilitators that you use are those local people or do you bring people in from outside the community as much as possible we use local people and that was the aim behind developing the kit was to provide all of the information and resources so that hopefully anyone in any part 
part of the province could pick it up and use it. Um, that being said, a lot of groups do like having a, a speaker come in from away because it, you know, adds to that feeling of having a special event. Mm-hmm. Um, but we encourage as much as possible for groups to host their own workshops and use their own local talent and knowledge to do that. So a lot of times I'm just providing the support distant um, by giving them resources and encouragement. And that. So how many different kinds of t- kits do you have for communities? Uh, well, we have the food skills workshops, which is the eight workshop guides that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. We have um, four toolkits on how to start up and run uh, community gardens, community kitchens, bulk buying clubs, and farmers markets. So those are initiatives that we've identified there's a lot of interest in, and groups can take these toolkits and start their own programs locally. And then similarly, we would provide mentoring and contacts and support to help them get it going. Um, so a lot of groups have used those kits to start their programs across the province. Yeah. We st- we started off talking about uh, those statistics about how many days you know of uh, sustainable food we have in the province. Do you, do you see a change? Are we are we moving in a new direction? I think people are becoming much more aware of it, and yeah. the, I've definitely seen a big upsurge in media attention. So it's getting out there on people's minds more often. Um, we're being contacted a lot more just for introductory kind of events. So can you tell us what food security is and what we can do and that kind of. Um, interest. So I, th- I see all of the community interest growing. And so now we have to ensure that the, the infrastructure and the policy and that follows suit as well. But we have some other interesting projects around uh, policy and, and community development and as- assembling people together and networking that are hopefully doing that as well. That's great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for for coming on, and we'll Thanks. be uh, we'll be looking for your rebranding and the new uh, yeah, web food stuff. And, <laughs> excellent. Well, great. Well, thank you for coming in. Thank you so much. I'm Dale Jarvis, and our production assistant is Tara Barrett. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio ninety three point five, in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Thanks for listening.